0: Hello and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Anthony Baffa, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Maine School of Law. We will discuss his articles. Word Limited, an empirical analysis of the relationship between the length, resiliency, and impact of federal regulations, and Strength in Numbers of Words, empirical analysis of preambles and public comments, both of which will be published in the Nevada Law Journal. So welcome to the show, Anthony. Thanks a lot for having me, Brian. So I I wonder if you could just start by giving listeners who may not be intimately acquainted with Administrative law or the empirical analysis of administrative law, sort of the lay of the land surrounding what these two papers are doing and what kind of body of research they're responding to. In other words, kind of what is the kind of background conventional wisdom around sort of administrative law and the empirical sort of problems or questions that people see arising around administrative law and, and agency uh, promulgations.
1: Sure. That's a, that's a great, great place to start. So a lot of initial empirical work on administrative law focused around this concept of ossification. And what we mean by ossification and administrative law is uh, there was a contention that Some of the reforms of the 1980s led to a slowdown in in the regulatory process, right? Basically, creating a static environment, and so a lot of the early uh, administrative law scholarship that was empirical in nature tried to determine whether or not that was true, right? Whether or not we actually had a state of ossification occurring in the 90s and into the 2000s. Much of that scholarship, you you know, comes out in favor or rather against ossification in favor of continued in continued rulemaking. The other sort of species of uh, administrative law scholarship that draws on empirics tends to uh, look at uh, judicial decisions regarding administrative rules. And so there's some really foundational work by Donald Elliott and others that looks at uh, what, what is the outcome in on judicial review for rules given certain variables, and and some of some of that work, and Cass Sunstein has some work in, in that space that looks at like the political uh, affiliation of the uh, president who appointed a given judge, uh, or or whether that matters. And so my work in, in some ways kind of combines these two strains and asks, I think a bit more simpler and more fundamental questions about how agencies work.
0: So what kind of conclusions or results sort of developed out of that previous body of work? And how do you see your scholarship developing? In other words, when you approach these projects, what were you hoping to accomplish when you took on this new area of research?
1: This work grew out of my own experience working for the federal government at the latter years of the Obama administration, so I was in the, uh, the Office of General Counsel at, at the Environmental Protection Agency during the last two years of the Obama presidency, uh, the second term, right? And and during that time, if if those in- environmental law nerds will know, but others may also know this too, if you just pay attention to climate change, uh, that there was a big push to get out rules that were called that collectively were called the Clean Power Plan. They were meant to sort of control a greenhouse gas emissions from the largest emitters in the United States. And I worked and so did many, many of my colleagues. and I only worked on a small piece of it. But I saw when I was there, the amount of work being put into these rules. And in particular, the amount of work being put in by lawyers with respect to the legal analysis of the justification for these rules, how they would, would stand up to judicial review and a lot of that work going into not, you know, some background strategy document that the agency was holding uh, in case of litigation, but into the rule itself in the preamble section, right? Here's explaining all of our, it was almost like we were writing a brief to the Supreme Court at, at times. If that's what it felt like. And to me, that felt a little bit preemptive to say the least, but also in some ways, like potentially uh, counterproductive in that we were like showing all of our cards right away. Uh, There were things about it that made me concerned about that approach. And and that was not unique to the Clean Power Plan that sort of permeated all of the agency's rulemaking activities. And so I, when I got into the academy, something always in the back of my mind was that I wanted to explore empirically, whether it made sense, to be devoting all of this rulemaking space in terms of words and pages to explaining our justification for the rule in in great greater and greater detail over time and i and i had this intuition that it that it was getting worse in terms of if you view that as a problem and and that intuition was the thing that i initially confirmed at the very beginning of these two papers and then i sort of branched off from there in setting out to try to explain why and and maybe uh, that explanation would be rational or that was the hope at least.
0: Well, so there's sort of a conventional wisdom out there, especially among non-lawyers and especially non-administrative lawyers, that there's just this blooming amount of federal regulatory law more and more every year, a giant avalanche kind of tumbling down all over us. It strikes me your papers are a little skeptical of the kind of, factual accuracy of that conventional wisdom on on the front end, but also kind of engage with it in terms of trying to answer these questions that, that you're asking. Can, can you talk a little bit about how those two different propositions, as it were, interact with each other?
1: It's a funny phenomenon, the the sort of popularization of this idea of like the, the giant, Regulatory state, and and I in my paper very early on I cite this treatment in the popular media, and there's a very funny picture of uh, President Trump cutting uh, kind of kind of this red tape with like these piles of paper and saying, "Oh, look at all these unnecessary regulations, right?" And you often hear this as a talking point inside in kind of the political pundit class, like there's all these unnecessary regulations, and so. One of the things that, you know, kind of, I would say tangentially, I set out to dispel is this notion that we're making more and more rules every year. In fact, we're not. Where if we count individual rules, we're actually making less individual rules per year over time. What we are doing is making those rules a lot longer. And that, that to me is what I, I set out to explain why the rules are getting longer. But at the same time, I wanted to at first point out that like we're all, we're all talking about the wrong thing. Like this is a this is a problematic and incorrect claim that the regulatory state is just getting more and more massive and, and more and more productive every year. In fact, it it's not.
0: Well, so you discuss two different hypotheses for why these rules, individual rules, are themselves getting longer relative to the average length of of rules in the past, uh, which you refer to as the insulation hypothesis and the socially beneficial hypothesis. So I wonder if you could explain what those two hypotheses propose and how you propose to go about testing whether or not they were, in fact, uh, borne out by the empirical
1: evidence. Sure. So the insulation hypothesis posits very simply that increasing the length of a rule makes that rule more resilient when subject to judicial review. So in other words, rules that are longer survive judicial review more frequently, or at least historically that's been the case. The socially beneficial hypothesis posits that rules are longer because they provide more quantifiable benefits to society, in other words, as a rule gets longer, it makes sense for that rule to be longer because that rule has more impact, and so that uh, that justifies the additional effort that goes into to making a longer rule. Those were the sort of two initial hypotheses I tested now how did I do that so i I built a data set myself uh looking because Not only did I need rules and the length of those rules, but I also needed to find corresponding circuit courts of appeal decisions with respect to the installation hypothesis that examined the rule and subjected that rule to arbitrary and capricious review. So in other words, I, I dispensed with rules that were, that had posed chevron problems because that to me is a statutory question. It's different than, you know, does the rule make sense, right? Arbitrary and capricious review is very specifically asking. Does this rule make sense from a logical perspective? Does the record support this rule? And the idea that we would make a rule longer is, in in some ways, a response to that type of review. To to a to a there's a whole body of administrative law scholarship that, and indeed, if you look at the case law around arbitrary and capricious review, that suggests that arbitrary and capricious review has become more searching over time. Right, judges are more and more uh, likely to like delve into the details of particular rules and and arguably one rational response to that is to put more details in those rules so that when judges look there they find the answer that they're looking for right uh and so that's what the installation hypothesis is all about and so in order to test that i needed to find rules and 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 you know get, get data on their length in terms of number of words and page counts or whatever variables I wanted to use. And I also needed to find cases that tested those rules. So obviously, the more limiting factor there is cases that test the rules. So I, I searched, I used the Lexis search to sort of call through cases that were testing EPA rules at the circuit court level for arbitrary and capricious review. And I used that set of cases to then build my set, my data set with respect to the rules. And then I use publicly available data on on the Federal Register to find out just how long those each rule that was tested was, and then you know I I, I tried to test for a correlation between the length of the rule and whether it survived judicial review. You know the results of that, if you want to get there right now, is that is that there was no statistically significant correlation between the length of a rule and its likelihood to survive judicial review. So the insulation hypothesis at that sort of first level was completely di- dispensed with. I cannot prove it to be true. And then with respect to the second hypothesis, the socially beneficial hypothesis, the rules provided one half of the data set. This is a different set of rules because these, this set was constrained by which rules did I have data quantifying their costs and benefits. And EPA does publish that data has since an executive order in the 1980s. But whether that data is available is 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 a trickier question. Uh, nowadays, uh, I was able to track down that that data for a a good, I I thought a healthy subset to provide me with the statistical analysis there. And and there I did find a positive correlation between the length of the rule and the benefits that at least EPA had quantified that rule as providing, which I think was at least in some ways heartening, uh, given my initial inclinations, and also uh, it, it's nice to have one of your hypotheses, your initial hypotheses, confirmed.
0: Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit about why it is you think that only looking at arbitrary and capricious review and not review for you know under Chevron deference is the kind of appropriate subset of of cases to look at. Like, look at, in other words, why would these hypotheses potentially be explanatory in one scenario, but not not in the other? And then also, why the EPA, right? Do you think EPA rulemaking is sort of characteristic of what happens in other agencies? And are there reasons to think that we can kind of at least semi-safely generalize from findings specific to the EPA to other agencies? Okay, so let's start
1: with that latter question about why EPA first. So there are two reasons why EPA. The first is kind of a boring and self-centered reason, and that's that I'm an environmental law professor and an environmental lawyer, and I worked at EPA. And so that's what I care about. Uh, But the second reason is one that I think that transcends the personal, right? And that's that EPA, if you look at the popular media attention around like bureaucracy, red tape, big government, the sort of regulatory reform in the popular media, a lot of that attention is focused on the Environmental Protection Agency uh, for better or or worse. And not only and that that may be misguided a bit, but it is true that EPA, regulations constitute a large portion of the Code of Federal Regulations and the Federal Register, if you look at pretty much any given snapshot in time after the EPA's founding. And so, it's, it's an important subset of rules. It's a subset of rules that draws a lot of ire. And so, that's the reason I focused on it. In terms of why I excluded from my data set decisions that dealt with chevron deference rather than arbitrary and capricious review is because chevron deference is really about statutory interpretation and statutory authority. And it is what it's not about is the substance of a given regulation. And so when we're talking about the length of a regulation, how much of that regulatory text is devoted to the question of statutory interpretation, increasingly more, uh, I'll grant that, but most of a regulatory text is about the, the substance of the regulation. What is it regulating? And that's what arbitrary and capricious review is about. And so if we're explaining the substance in greater detail, it's really arbitrary and capricious review that's going to engage with that. And so that's what I was, I was trying to uh, sort of remove from the data set those cases where, you know, The regulatory text is kind of only tangential to really the statutory interpretation question, which is really a question of the agency's power as granted by Congress. And really, we're focused more on the statute in some ways than we are on the regulation. So one question I had reading the paper
0: is whether it's more correct to think about what you were testing for as being whether these two hypotheses of insulation and socially beneficial were explanatory with respect to the actions taken by the agency as as compared to or as opposed to asking whether or not, to the extent they're explanatory of everything, they actually work in practice.
1: Yeah. So those are two independent questions. I agree. Yeah. Um, and I think It's much easier uh, from a statistical analysis standpoint to test uh, the former, right? To test whether they explain what has historically been the case, right? Whether you can look at the data and say, you know, has this correlation existed in the past versus kind of looking forward or using it as a predictive model with a regression analysis. Could we say that by putting more words in the next regulation, we are better insulating it from judicial review, right? By putting more people on it to make it longer, are we are we agency shielding ourselves from the inevitable court case challenging this rule? And in fact, that's what my analyses kind of bear out is that my regression models tend, tended to not, when, when you drill down it, it, into the the analysis of the fit of those models and how good they were at predicting future behavior or how good they would be at predicting future outcomes, they tended to be uh, less significant or less important than just the correlations on past performance, past experience. So that to me, it's a difficult question of, uh, for, for an empiricist uh, in terms of designing your study. And I tried to, I tried to kind of split the difference and do, and do both. But it, admittedly, you know, that's where I get the most pushback here, right, the correlation Causation, connection, and and kind of pushing on that a little bit to say, you know, what is this really telling us?
0: So, in your new paper, you present a second empirical study looking at at public comments and and the preambles to to rules. Sort of how did that grow out of the first project, and what questions were you hoping to ask and answer in
1: in that paper? So. This grew directly out of the first project in that it shares a lot of the same data set. And with respect to the preamble piece of it, in in testing the insulation hypothesis in Word Limited, I found myself thinking about it more and more and really revisiting the fact that my initial insight when I was in practice at EPA was that we were spending too much time writing what in, what in practice was the preamble to the rule, right? It wasn't the regulatory text. And when I went to examine these rules, it was true that I would find rules that were 90 and 100 pages in length, that, you know, 80 to 90 of those pages were preamble, and the regulation itself is just a small piece of, of the puzzle. And so that Led me to this conclusion that well, what I'm really concerned about here or what i'm what I really want to test is whether preamble sections have been getting longer and whether the length of preamble section is correlated at all or has been correlated at all with performance on judicial review. And so, in order to complete that picture and really settle the score with respect to the insulation hypothesis, I felt that I needed to do that, which required a, a admittedly a bit of extra legwork on my part, because now I had to take these rules that I had already coded and already counted the words in and find, isolate the preamble section, uh, find software that would count the words in that preamble section and then input that data and then run all the analyses again, which is what that part of the study is. And it does indeed, I think, settle the question that there really is no statistically significant or there has not been a statistically significant correlation between the length of what we write in the preamble and whether or not a rule succeeds uh, on judicial review. With respect to public comments, that grew out of me workshopping the first paper. So when I would go to present the first paper, the inevitable first, I have one comment and one question. The comment would be, what about public comment? And the question would be, did you look at that at all? And so I felt that I in order to to really complete the picture and address that concern, I needed to to do that work. and I couldn't do it in the first paper. I didn't have the data, so I had to go back and build the data set that put the pub number of public comments for each of the rules that I had in the initial data set and test that and indeed, you know again that that hypothesis, the second of the two hypotheses in the second paper it right, was confirmed, right? There was a statistically significant correlation between the number of public comments and the length of a rule. And that's per, per, perhaps, and actually, you know, it's very unsurprising. Right? I mean, I, and I think that's what some of the initial, why I would always get that as kind of the first question comment it, when I was workshopping the first paper.
0: So why would that be? unsurprising.
1: I mean, why would
0: the number or volume or length of public comments affect the length of the preamble of of a rule?
1: Because the APA, the Administrative Procedures Act, requires that agencies respond to significant comments. And where agencies make those responses generally is in the preamble text of the rule's federal register entry. So when, we, when we get to that point, we, we can find, especially in modern rulemakings, very clearly demarcated a section of the Federal Register entry that is devoted exclusively to responses to comments. And so it's unsurprising then that as the number of significant comments grows, so does the length of the rule because of, because of that one section that's responding to the comment. In, in addition to that, we also have the, the reality that this is how it's supposed to work, right? In in theory, public comment changes the rule. Right? The, oh, we didn't think about this thing. We should probably address that in the final rule, right? Which means adding to the regulatory text. So even if you know the response is brushing off the comment, but even more so if the response is well, we should really change the rule to address that comment. So now the rule text has grown. Not only there's a response to that comment that says see section 4B of the rule as it's now constituted, we we did address this. Then you go to section 4B and there's a whole new section of the rule addressing that particular concern. And so that in two ways, that is a double effect in, in terms of increasing the length. So that's that's why it's unsurprising.
0: Well, so in both papers, you... Acknowledge that not all rules are made the same, as it were, when it comes to their length and why they're of a particular length, and specifically why the preamble might be longer or shorter based on the volume of public comments that come rolling in. Obviously, you tried to sort of work that into your analysis. I wonder if you could talk a little bit just about sort of how you thought about the differences between different kinds of rules and how that might affect the data and the conclusions that you would draw from it.
1: The most significant way that this difference in rules played out was that I identified, in particular with respect to the number of comments, some very, very significant outliers. Rules that had millions of comments between power plans, a great example. I ended up redoing the analysis and excluding those outliers as I identified them just to sort of allay concerns that those outliers were skewing the whole data set, right? Because of how significant they were in terms of their numbers. And I that so that was the most impactful way that in terms of the statistical analysis that the like sort of individual differences between types of rulemaking and the subject of rulemaking and the administrators involved sort of infiltrated my statistical analysis and affected the way that I ran my models and thought about the numbers. In terms of my theoretical thinking on this, I try to kind of push it out because I'm really trying here to see if we can explain something using data alone. Obviously, we can talk for days about, you know, sort of the political theory behind writing a longer rule and the different individual characters involved at EPA when the rule was crafted and what's going on and the out the external politics of the nation at the time, which I think could explain a lot of like the Clean Power Plan, for example. I keep coming back to that, but it's a very salient example. We could write about that, but that's not what this paper is about. This paper is about can we just say without more, like the number of words has historically had some effect or has at least historically been correlated with other variables with respect to rulemaking? And what does that tell us? Does it tell us anything about how we should do agency work going forward? How commentators should think about criticizing agency work? How you know, scholars should think about studying the work of agencies, I- at least empirically. That's where I landed. But I I, I 100%, you know, carry in my mind this, this sort of uh, theoretical and practical reality that you know we're dealing with individual rulemakings that have very different purposes. Some of those purposes may be completely external to the actual text and effect of the regulation right because of politics. And so you know that's a whole other paper uh, that I'm, and I'm sure others have obviously engaged with that with that topic and I could engage with as well, but that's not these papers.
0: So Anthony, in closing, I wonder if you could kind of just leave listeners with the big picture takeaways that you want people to glean from these two papers and what new questions if any do you think they suggest we should be asking about the sort of empirics of of regulation going forward
1: so what we should glean from these i think is first and foremost that adding more preambular text to a rule to explain it better does not or at least has not historically translated to that rule being better insulated from judicial review. So there has to be another reason for adding preambular text than that one. Secondly, we can see that longer rules have tended to have more benefits, and they have tended to inspire or be responsive to more public comments. And that makes sense. Those explanations make, I think, quite rational sense for why a rule would be longer. In terms of future study or future exploration, one area that I think this, the second paper in particular really prods at is the usefulness of public comment as it's borne out in practice, right? We can see other empiricists have looked at this as well. And when you start to drill down into who's making the comments and whether the what the comments look like, the, the picture gets even bleaker because, What we're really saying is the agency is spending a lot of time responding to these comments, and oftentimes the agencies are brushing them off, and the times when they're not brushing them off are more frequently when the comments are made by corporate interests rather than concerned citizens or non-governmental organizations. And that's not my own finding, that's others have found that, but it coincides with my finding to suggest that Agencies are just doing a lot of work responding to these comments. And perhaps it's not yielding the benefits that the APA uh, imagined initially, right? That the the drafters of the APA had these grand visions of this sort of democratic bureaucracy that was accountable to the public through public comment. And when we released regulations.gov and made it easy for us to do that online, you know, that, that made it even more democratic. And I'll I'll conclude with this anecdote that I that I share with my environmental law class every fall. And there's a there's a particular rulemaking related to the waters of the United States that engendered a lot of public comment. One of those public comments was a YouTube video that was a parody of the song "Let It Go" from the Disney film Frozen. Was that a useful public comment? How did the agency respond to that? Is it a good use of some agency lawyer's time to watch that YouTube video? I I don't know. The answer to that is definitely no, but it doesn't, it doesn't strike me that it's definitely yes either. And so I think that's something, you know, that is an area like sort of the usefulness of public comment that I think deserves even more scholarly attention. It is obviously getting some. So I I would love to see some more study in, in that direction.
0: Awesome. Well, Anthony, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing these two excellent papers. Uh, Really provocative look at agency rulemaking and sort of how it plays out in practice. And uh, I learned a lot from reading them. And I hope that interested listeners will check them out as well, because all the number crunching is very impressive. And there's a lot of details that we didn't get a chance to talk about.
1: Thanks a lot, Brian. (music)
2: travel everywhere live just like a millionaire if money grew on trees i would find a fortune floating in the breeze i wouldn't mind working hard raising money in my own backyard I'd buy a million dollars Worth of flashy clothes Strut down old Broadway I wouldn't squeeze a dollar Till it hollered If it hollered I'd throw it away I'd live just like a king on each finger, I would wear a diamond ring. Then life would be a joke, cause I never would be broke, if money grew on trees.
3: You know what? what what's that? What? If money grew on trees.
2: Supposing it did. Mm-hmm.
3: Boy, huh. i live a life of ease. A life of ease. Travel everywhere, you know. On a freight train? No. Like all the rest of them millionaires, you know.
2: Oh, I see. Like me, yeah, yeah.
3: You know, mm-hmm. if money grew on trees...
2: Tell me more, boy. Tell me more. Boy. What?
3: I'd find a fortune floating on the breeze.
2: Floating on the breeze?
3: Yep. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't mind working hard. No. That is raising the money in my own backyard.
2: Oh, oh, I see what you
3: mean. That ain't no crime, is no, it? No, it ain't no crime. You know crime. what, son? What, what? I'd buy myself a million dollars. A million? With a flashy clothes.
2: Top hats and tails. Boy,
3: mm-hmm. huh. I'd strut down old Broadway. Ah, oh, Broadway. Broadway. You know what? Huh? I wouldn't squeeze a dollar. Tell her how Yeah. Because if it hollered, uh-huh. I'd be like Mr. Savoy.
2: What'd he do?
3: Throw it away.
2: My, my!
3: I'd live just sure. like a king.
2: You mean like me and all your yeah, cats. I know what
3: you mean, yeah. And on each finger, just like you, yeah. I'd have a great big diamond ring.
2: Let's see, let's see. That's ten locks, Jack.
3: Life would be a joke. Yeah. Because I never would be broke. That is... money grew.